Welcome to Heartbeat Podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Bright, along with my co-host, Joy Stanford. We aim to change the hearts of corporate America. Each week, you'll hear us discuss politics, business, the voice of the black woman, and how our voices are needed in today's world. We bring a myriad of guests on. We love to highlight and promote brown and black people. And our focus is on the ecosystems that are necessary to change corporate America. Through these conversations, you will get a deeper understanding of what is necessary for change. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat Radio and Podcast. It's Wednesday evening. Excited to have our show and our guest tonight. I'm by myself this evening as Joy is still traveling, so I think I can do this. Uh, I did it for three years before I brought her on, so I'm going to do my best to um, speak with our guests that we have on this evening. Before I bring her in, you know, a couple things I'll say. Um, you all watch, first off, thank you all who joined last week for celebrating my 150th episode. I was kind of a big deal, so thank you all for being there. Um, you know that my focus has has and continues to be uh, on advancing and hearing the voice of Black women. And when I uh, talk with folks who are in corporate America, um, having uh, parity for access for opportunities for Black people, and particularly Black women, is important. It's a hot topic out now uh, where companies are supposedly having these conversations um, I wanted to bring on somebody who has actually gotten to the top ranks of corporate America in her career. She's a phenomenal woman. Let me just, I actually had to pull up her bio in front of me because she's accomplished so much. So we're excited to have her tonight. Uh, she is the founder of Boggs Media. So that's her media company that manages. She is a musician. When she was scheduled on the last time, something like the Grammys, I think, uh, got um, cross paths with our show. So she was there. So musician, speaker, she's a lawyer by training. She's the former general counsel. This is, that's the top lawyer in corporate America in Starbucks. And so we are so thrilled to have her on tonight to have a conversation about what it means to be black in the boardroom. So let's welcome Paula Boggs on to Heartbeat Radio and Podcast this evening. Hi, Cindy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thank you for joining and coming on. This is a rarity and a treat to have uh, you here and somebody who can actually speak to our community um, about, um, I'll say, diversity or we can talk about equity, but you you have so much that you have accomplished. Uh, we want to hear about you, and we want to have a conversation with you about, you told me some stories, and I pulled out all my notes from last time I talked to you about <laughs> some of the things that you had shared with me, which are powerful, and why we aim to advance Black women into the boardroom. So I would love to turn it over to you and just let you introduce yourself to our audience and talk a little bit about yourself your background, why you do what you do, and then we can get into uh, the boardroom uh, kind of conversation. Uh, sure, yeah, I'm I'm happy to do it. And, you know, I, I don't want to be too much of a, a talking head. So I will uh, spend a few moments uh, sharing with your audience who I am. And then, you know, let's, let's get into it. So um, I am, uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, I'm one of these people who is in her third chapter 
of uh, career. And I guess technically there was a fourth chapter before I became an adult, but this is my third uh, third chapter as as an adult, at least in terms of career. So yeah, who who is Paula Boggs? Well, uh, I have I have been. Uh, my family has been in the United States for over 200 years, and so I am the progeny of slaves on both sides of my family. And like a lot of African Americans, uh, the story I like to share is across that 200 plus year period, each generation has done at least a little better than the generation that came before. And that is, is certainly my story. I am the child of educators. Uh, my my dad was the first PhD in zoology uh, at at Howard University, historically black college. Uh, my mother, uh, also a graduate of Howard, uh, became an educator, and so um, I had the good fortune of of starting life on that track. And indeed, um, as as a little kid, uh, we moved from Washington, D.C. to segregated Virginia. And while there, I was the child of a professor at historically Black Virginia State, then college, now Virginia State University. And one of the most, I think, um, important things about me and that time of my life uh, is this. Uh, very early on, I learned a couple things that have animated the rest of my life. One is I, because I was the child of college educated people and we lived at least for a time, literally on a college campus, my idea of what it means to be black was was formed by my surroundings, which were everyone I knew, all the kids I knew were black kids I knew were like me, the children of highly educated people uh, and and I knew their parents. And so for me, very early on as I was, forging my own identity as a black person, that's what it meant to me. Uh, being black meant being excellent uh, and um, academically gifted. Uh, those were attributes of African-Americans that I internalized very early in my life. A, a second lesson I learned was um, a couple different flavors of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, that you know continue to serve me well. My my dad was Catholic, my mom was African Methodist Episcopal, and what that meant for me was I toggled uh, from Sunday to Sunday between two radically different flavors of Christianity. Um, and learned how to navigate that. Uh, related to that is 
I was a minority within a minority because only 10% of African-Americans are Roman Catholic. And so um, all of that was the setting uh, for me when I attended Catholic school as the only black girl for several years uh, in my elementary school at a place that at the time was the only integrated school in segregated Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, and so those experiences really began to forge my my sense of self and race uh, in America. Uh, and and then something really radical happened, which was my my folks split up, and with that, my mom took herself and her four children, me being the oldest, out of the segregated South, out of the United States, and to Europe. And with that, for the first time in my life, I lived in a fully integrated. Uh, situation, which was I was living in a U.S. military community in Europe where my mom taught the children of military personnel. Uh, and, and in addition to that, I was an American on somebody else's soil. All of that, I think, um, taught me uh, different uh different things about navigating this whole thing called race uh, in the United States. And so when I came back for college and whatnot, uh, I think I was equipped with tools that elude many uh, African-Americans in the United States of America. Uh, since returning and and for the past, you know, let's say 40 years, uh, I've been on a journey that has included stints uh, in the U.S. military. Um, I I spent about 30 years, uh, give or take, as a lawyer. And for the past 10 years, I've been exclusively... Uh, in the creative arts. And so that's, that's who I am uh, in a nutshell. And I'll let Cindy continue to ask me questions. Yeah, quite a background. You know, I was um, a couple of the things you said that, uh, that struck me. One was about your ability, how you learned how to toggle. And so the, when you were sharing about the different um, faith aspects of your family, and I wonder um, how that played into your rise in corporate America, um, because one could argue that the ability to toggle, um, you, you know, you've been in different communities, you've been in different countries. And so learning how to navigate those, can you talk to us about how you were able to rise to a top job in the boardroom of a major Fortune 100 company? Yes. So, you know, I think one of the um, huge takeaways for me from, from having one parent be Roman Catholic and one parent being 
um, a member of the African Methodist, Methodist Episcopal Church, was when I was in whichever environment that was, I was all in. I wasn't pretending. You know, I I developed a a sense of self that said, you know, when I'm here, this is me. Uh, and it is authentically me. And when I'm there, this is me. And I'm authentically me. And so I think, you know, some of those things that, you know, I didn't hyperanalyze it. It just became the rhythm of my childhood have really served me well, coupled with when I lived in Europe between ages 13 and 18, I attended three different schools in two different countries in five years. And that really, those facts really taught me how to read a culture very quickly and learn how to literally not be the new kid. And so I think those experiences in childhood really enabled me to, whether the job was the Army General Counsel's office in, in the Pentagon or the Reagan White House, where you know I was the only black professional woman I remember <laughs> the whole time I was working there, or you know, at the US Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor when there was a period of time when I was the only black female prosecutor across, I think, you know, 10 plus states. Um, learning, okay, what are the norms? What are the cultural norms in this place? And how do I not be the new kid? How do I not be, you know, the person who sticks out? Now, mind you, if I'm a black woman and everybody else in my work environment is a white male, I'm going to stand out. So, the the skill set I think I learned uh, as a middle schooler and high schooler was active listening, um, acute observation. Um, yeah, I'm a black woman and they're all white guys, but is there anything we have in common? And if so, how can I capitalize on that? And a perfect example of that is when I worked in the Reagan White House, when I was in the military, um, there, as I said, there were no black professional women in the Reagan White House that I remember. Um, and most of the people I worked with were, as you might imagine, in the Reagan White House, white male, including my boss. Um, and Facially, there was really nothing in common between my middle-aged white boss and me. But what we discovered after a relatively short period of time was we were both Roman Catholic. And, and what that meant was there were things about my upbringing that were identical or close enough 
to his upbringing. And, and, you know, Cindy, whether it's corporate America or anywhere else, when you're talking about mentoring, most people gravitate towards people who remind them of themselves, right? And so, you know, if you're in an environment like I was in the Reagan White House, you, I mean, facially, there's a, there's a, I'm not going to remind anybody in a position of power of their younger self. But if you, if you start, you know, sharing, you know, these about us and, you know, what we were experiencing, my experience was like that too. Um, you know, before you know it, or at least in my experience, these, these common threads emerge. And guess what? In the case of my relationship with my boss, he became not only a mentor to me, but a sponsor of me. Uh, and when I th- think about the first 10 years of my legal career at every major sort of de- decision point in that journey, he was there for me. Uh, and that and that happens, I think, in part because people connect some way with each other that leads to the mentor in that relationship seeing something in you that reminds them of their younger slash uh, less experienced self. You know, as you, as you're talking and describing what your experience um, has been when you, I'm going to paraphrase some things um, when you uh, have been embraced. um, So you, you know, folks have, you know, the, the men that you're describing have embraced who you are, um, mentored you along. Um, you have been able to show up authentically in the workplace. As you describe that, that has not been the experience of many Black women. And so many Black women, um, maybe my question is, what have you seen what I'm describing in terms of the disconnect or the lack of mentorship or the lack of support inside of organizations to embrace who they are. I mean, that's the first question. And then now we're in a social racial outcry um, in corporate America over the lack of embracing of people who are different and people who, um, and so how do you, how do you reconcile that? And what advice do you have for black women that don't have those people who take them under the wings and help them move along. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, you know, not, not only have I seen it, um, I've had a first row seat to it. Um, And, you know, and it, it can happen even with people who have had maybe not all of the experiences I've had, um, you know, the, integrative experiences I've had, but nonetheless have been in settings before I got to meet them where some of the things that um, are part of my story were part of theirs. And specifically, I'm thinking about um, the law firm I worked at 
uh, after several years uh, in government. Well, I, I was the first black female uh, partner in the history of that law firm. But shortly after I got there, the law firm hired two black associates. One was uh, one was male and one was female. The, the female um, black associate was a West Point graduate. Okay, so you know, so we were, you know, we we were, um, you know, we were bonded by both being black women, but we were also bonded by both being veterans, right? And and I know there's no doubt in my mind to have graduated from West Point meant she had had to navigate um, a lot of stuff, so she wasn't coming into the law law firm as somebody who had never had the experience of needing to sort of navigate, if you will, to get things done. And the black man had graduated from, I can't remember where he had gone to law school, but he, his undergraduate degree was from MIT. Uh, and, um, and he was, I, he was either chemical engineering or electrical engineering. So, you know, so neither of these people were coming to this law firm as, you know, virgins, if you will, in the need to navigate um, highly competitive situations where they were in, clearly in the minority, right? However, however, within six months, of my leaving that firm for something else, those two people had left too. And I can, I attribute that to people need champions, you know? And I honestly, Cindy, didn't even appreciate until they left how much of a champion I was for them, you know, and it was perhaps as much the fact that I was just there, you know, that there was someone who they could see who had quote made it, if you will, at least in their eyes. Right. And then my absence, right meant that they were now in a very different Petri dish. Uh, and so, you know, what that taught me, and um, I never forgot that lesson, is representation matters. It really does matter. Even if, as was the case at Starbucks, there were people I never met. There were people in the company I never met. And yet the fact that I was there was meaningful to them. It, it gave them a, an anchor at a place where 
anchors were hard to come by, right? Um, and so all of that um, teaches me that leadership matters. And I've had the good fortune of being a leader in corporate America. But even beyond leadership, their representation matters. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Um, yes, it does. I, you know, I captured your two words of champion, championing for people mm -hmm. and navigating for people. And I think that that, um, I think that whole area, you know, it's an, the overused term that continues to be used is mentorship, but no sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, those, that language has become much more performative in nature um, in terms of um, leaders taking uh, people off of succession plans who are highly capable, highly talented, and actually tangibly getting them into spaces of power and influence. Before I jump into that topic, because we do uh, a station identification here in another minute, I'm going to take the break now and come back and pick back up on that particular area. So um, you're listening to Rainier Avenue Radio. This is Cindy Braid at Heartbeat. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Phenomenal Paula Boggs, media mogul, entrepreneur, corporate general counsel, <laughs> army veteran. Let me just, the, the list goes on. So we're so grateful to have her on here talking to us and sharing her stories with us about her rise in corporate America and the type of um, setups that helped her to be successful. So let's bring Paula back in. I want to pick back up, uh, Paula, because last time you and I talked, so we, before the break, we were talking about navigating uh, people mm -hmm. and championing them. Mm -hmm. And I remembered a story you told me one time, um, which is a powerful depiction of this exact issue of championing for somebody. It was a story about a woman in your boardroom and one of the executives uh, made an assumption about her. And I want to say, was she falling asleep or there was something that had happened? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to, to, yeah. to share that story. So, um, you know, the, the, the setting at our company, which, you know, happens in, in corporate America, you have, you have a CEO that's left, you have a new CEO and, and in our case, it was the founder and, you have this period where people are, you know, trying to prove themselves to, you know, the new sheriff, the, the new, the new guy in this case. Uh, and so that was the, the context of uh, the story I'm about to share. So 
it is uh, a meeting of the CEO and his direct reports. I am at the time uh, the only, I was certainly the only African-American in the room, I believe. And I'm pretty sure I was the only woman in the room too. Uh, But that was the context for the story. So in in a period of people trying to prove themselves, uh, one of my peers uh, said something to the effect, you know, people are just so lazy these days and we've got to take care of it. In fact, I just saw a woman who was asleep on the couch in the eighth floor. And the eighth floor was where most of the senior executives or many of the senior executives worked. The CEO was on the eighth floor. And so the statement is made about a woman who is asleep on the couch uh, outside the boardroom. I don't know who the woman is, but in a split second, I had to make a decision because I could have let it go. It was it was one of these uh, so-called casual comments uh, before the business of the day was being discussed in earnest. Uh, but I made another decision. I made the decision to speak up, and and what I what I said was calmly. <laughs> you know nothing about this woman. You don't know if she's been up for the past 72 hours trying to finish a project. You don't know if she is recovering from chemotherapy. You don't know if she was dealing with a sick child or parent. You don't know. With that, there was this this really awkward silence. Okay. Uh, And I'm actually not sure how long it lasted, but likely only a couple seconds before, in a very impatient tone, uh, the CEO said, let's move on. You know, let's move on. And we did. And what I think I I shared with you, Cindy, is, you know, I have no way of knowing whether a comment of that sort happened again out of the mouths of any of the people who were in the room that day. But I do know this, no one in that room ever made a comment of that nature when I was present from that moment forward. That's so. That yeah. story is so powerful, Paula. I mean, when you told it to me, it, the reason why it stuck with me so is because it um, it illustrates or it mirrors what the lives of women are um, and the judgment and assumptions that are made about folks with no context in the name of the game of, I can't remember how you, the words you use, but po- folks trying to prove themselves. Yeah, And so the... Um, default behavior 
becomes to sell her out in order for him to rise. Mm-hmm. You, you know, so that has been my experience watching how these issues play themselves out, which is why we're so fascinated and thrilled to have you here because it's not normal <laughs> that it's just not a normal that, you know, a black woman would get into that room and then you have to be the person to address the issue. Um, albeit it was the way that you managed it to um, just making the comments created a level of discomfort so much that they wanted to move on. And now here mm-hmm. we are in today's world. I, I think that was several years ago when that happened. It, it sure was. Yeah. And here we are in today's world where uh, the CEO now is struggling to decide what he or she now must start to say or speak about inside of organizations because of uh, the term I'll use is organizational justice is now being required or demanded by people, the workers. And so as we think about that whole topic, right, of the movement that's happening across this country, the there are a lot of things happening that you see indicators that uh, the, the C-suite is not um, either listening or or prepared for the moments that we're in right now, right? We're in unionization, uh, we're in racial reckoning. You know, we have a lot of, uh, the world has a lot of demand on corporate America. So I'm curious to your thoughts about where we are now, because you've been out for a hot minute of sitting in that boardroom. And so, and I, I want to get to that, but what, do you, what are your thoughts about where we are, where corporate America is now as a state of, progressing women into senior leadership roles, progressing, you know, BIPOC people into more senior level roles and getting them ready and championing them to get into some of these positions of power. What do you, what do you think about what's happening now? Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, energy around these issues. Some of it is real. Some of it is not. And sometimes I find, you know, you you have in corporate America, I'll say, you know, and it, it, you know, how this plays out will vary from industry to industry and sometimes from company to company within an industry. But, you know, you have the marginalized groups and, and, and those who are not marginalized, right? And, you know, one of the perversions is playing marginalized groups off each other, right? So, you know, you if to to champion African Americans must somehow necessarily mean that you are are less um less enthusiastic about championing women or you're, you know, you're not championing you know, the LGBTQIA community with the same energy perhaps you did before George Floyd's murder. Uh, And, you know, that's nonsense. Uh, It all matters. It really, I mean, there's some some people like me who, you know, are members of all of those groups, right? You know, Uh, and, um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that I I try to um, express um, either when I'm in the boardroom or speaking, because I speak 
with a number of different groups. And some some are law firms, some are Fortune 500 companies, some are, are startups, some are, you know, college campuses, right? Uh, and and what I what I say about that is no, it it all matters. It it, it really all matters. A um, and B though uh, because you know I try to give people hope, Cindy, right? And and so what I what I also say is if we're talking about race and we're specifically talking about African Americans, <laughs> what I say is don't make this Mount Everest. Okay. Because if you, if you make this Mount Everest, no one will climb it. Okay. <laughs> Very few people are going to even attempt to climb Mount Everest, and we need people to move forward, right? And so what I try to encourage people, particularly because some of some of the groups I address um, are, are people where the preponderance of people in the room are technical people or scientific people or left brain people, right? Um, and, and what I what I say to those people is, look, if you're a scientist, the expectation is you will fail a lot. You will fail a lot before you move forward. That's I mean, if you get to move forward without failing a lot, that that is so exceptional because the baseline in in science is failure. Right. Um, and so, it, you know, and, and so it is. You don't give up just because you fail. You, you try something else and you you try to you try to um, learn right from the failures. Right. Uh, and, and, and so it is here. Um I, I specifically said this to, you know, a, a white 40-something sort of engineer-oriented CEO who said something, I'm paraphrasing, but said something to the effect, look, I want to do the right thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I, you know, I am, I fear, you know, I feel like I'm walking on, eggshells. I feel as if I'm going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. Um, and, and so what can you tell me? What, what can you say to somebody like me? And, and that was my response. Uh, my response was first, thank you for, well, thank you for being here because you're the CEO. So you're, 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 you're showing by being here that you care about this topic, A. B, thank you for asking the question because it demonstrates vulnerability. It, it demonstrates that you recognize you don't know it all and you wanna learn, right? And then three is what I, what I said about 
Mount Everest and about, you know, being, um, you know, being in a mindset of, I'm not always going to get it right. Now, Cindy, I believe not just white people should have that mindset sometimes. I mean, people are trying. If you slap them upside the head, I mean, you know, a hundred times, they're going to stop trying, right? And so I, I, I urge, um, you know, my my fellow <laughs> African Americans um, and and BIPOC communities to to stay engaged too, because we need each other that way to to move you know to to move the ship and we need to move the ship because the status quo is not sustainable in my view yeah yeah it's interesting listening to you describe that i relate to some of the things you're saying about um there is kind of this balance of mm-hmm. um push and pull right push mm-hmm. uh, when you need um I don't know if you've heard, I'm going to just go off topic for just a quick second, but I um, was listening last week to this podcast by the Delta airline CEO and mm. um, had a, a conversation about this. And he was interviewed by uh, a Harvard um, black man who asked him some really good questions. And it was interesting for me to listen because the way that I was listening to that conversation was from my old lens, a former um, HR director and listening to, um, I could pick out of what he was saying, which statements were corporate communications folks infused into him answering questions, you know? And so there's mm-hmm. this fine line. I think it's what you're talking about between, um, the top ranks of a business who see and know and, um, demand change in their organizations and then there's the rub between how does that happen and then how does that filter down and help create um, longer term powerful solutions um, on these topics. And so that's mm-hmm. what the wrestling is uh, going on right now. The rub between we have to say something um, and we've gone dead quiet post George Floyd now. So they're kind of riding the waves right now to try to stay, um, keep their heads above water, but not get caught. Uh, with their pants down, so to speak, right? So <laughs> it's just, you know, listening to that Delta CEO, how he was navigating that conversation. Um, and I thought one of the most powerful questions that he was asked that I'm going to ask you, um, he asked what tangibly, like he said, look, we've been talking about this for a long time, corporate America. People like, you know, you, Paul, I spent 30 years inside of corporate America, 15 mm-hmm. years of my career was executive levels. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about this for a long time. And so what tangibles do you feel or would you recommend um, the boardroom or organizations do right now, even if it's one thing? What's one thing you tangibly that you believe that they should do to help progress this whole topic of equity um, earning power, you know, all, that all comes from the ability to grow um, and rise. What one thing do you think 
you would suggest that they do? Yeah, you know, I I think one of the things that can be done is to this is my term de-ghettoize diversity, equity and inclusion, right? Um, that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because because the way we the way we talk about, or not all of us, but too often, we we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion as if it is something. I mean, if I'm a if if I'm a thirty something white guy, uh, th- then you know my default is going to be. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is not about me. It's about somebody else. It's about those people or, you know, whoever those people are uh, in his environment. And so that is that, that, you know, and so the response to that is checking out, right? You know, it's like, not me. I don't benefit from it, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the, what I was able to do in my 10 years at Starbucks was reimagine diversity, equity, and inclusion so that um, it everybody was invited to not only have, but share his or her DEI story, right? Uh, and we we did a number of things to sort of put meat on that bone. And I, I will tell you this. So I left Starbucks 10 years ago. Uh, last week or the week before, I had um, I had a reunion of sorts with one of the guys who had worked for me uh, for all 10 years. Uh, at Starbucks. And I would say he's now 50 and he's, he's a white guy. What he said to me uh, was this. He said, he said, Paula, you made diversity, equity, and inclusion about me. And, and how did that happen? Right? So I had created this, this, forum uh, in, in, in an effort to demystify diversity, equity, and inclusion um, to carve out a part of our monthly staff meeting so that, um, you know, anyone who wanted to could share their diversity, equity, inclusion story, right? And so this one meeting, um, uh, Japanese American man, his uh, in Portland, and um, actually a woman who was born in Spain um, and immigrated to the United States shared her story about how people would um, presume she was less intelligent than she was because um, English was not her first language, right? Um, 
And so these two people had shared their stories and Steve had absorbed this. So after the meeting, I, I had a, a practice of sort of walking the halls and I came by his office and, um, and he was emotional. And I said, you know, Steve, what's, what's going on? And he said, um, I, I don't have a diversity story. I'm just, you know, a white guy who grew up on a chicken farm in, you know, rural New Jersey. And I said, well, Steve, how many chicken farmers are in law and corporate affairs? <laughs> you know, and um, and he looked at me and he 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 actually started crying. So that was that happened 15 years ago. Last week, he said, Paula, when you said to me, that was one of the most eye-opening moments in my life about diversity, equity, inclusion, because it 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 for the first time, it had included him, right? And I think people need that. They need a way to embrace these goals that in a way that lifts all boats, if you will, right? Um, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, not the first chair, but the, the second and third chairs of our department DEI uh, committee were white guys because I wanted them to have skin in the game. Uh, and, and that, you know, it, there was the symbolism of it, but there was also the doing the work, you know, what we were doing in holding suppliers accountable, you know, who were we hiring and championing, uh, within the organization and, and all of that stuff. Right. But it starts in my view with not, you know, there's, there, there's never going to be 100% buy-in, but if you can get the preponderance of people, regardless of their race, gender, have to buy in, then you're going to, you're going to have an organization over time that not only values DEI, but excels because of it. It's an interesting way that you answered that from my perspective. Um, the um, the de-ghettoizing, which I am definitely stealing from you. Um, but your point is well taken. Let me let me comment about that a little bit because you know, DEI in organizations has rarely um, ever been um, invested in. So some companies had chief diversity officers, some didn't, some made it just part of the recruiting process, put X amount of people in the pool, we'll call it good, as long as we're looking mm-hmm. at X amount of people. Um, mm-hmm. And so the co- business was operating in my era, mostly as having diversity as part of rhythm of the business. And so they bring people in like me to do HR and it becomes a part of the fiber of how we do business. But it took people like me to keep that fiber woven into everything that we did because we mm-hmm. didn't have 
separate entities that were stood up because of this, because of lack of diversity. But post George Floyd, there were, you know, 5,000 job postings on Indeed looking for chief diversity officers because companies clearly had woven away from this whole notion of progress in this space. And mm-hmm. there is outcry from people about the fact that we haven't made the kind of progress. And so as you're yeah. describing the, um, you know, putting accountability back on, I do agree with that. It's their responsibility as business leaders to have this as part of how they do business. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge is that unless you're holding feet, their feet to the fire in many regards, um, it's, it's minimally, um, uh, being progressed. It looks like one of our listeners is enjoying this. About, <laughs> um, I mean, this is just kind of the issues we try to talk about every week because I, we're trying to advance this conversation and advance progress in this whole space around people. How do we get people heard, seen, promoted, valued, all of those sorts of things. We've got like two minutes left in the show. I knew it was going to fly by. Um, do you have, you know, uh, do you have advice for other particularly black women who are in corporations who want to be uh, championed and navigated and need sponsorships? Do you have any words of wisdom for them on how they can become embraced inside of business? Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, part of, I think, Part of my success um, has been luck. Part of my success um, has been um, the way I've been able to inspire people to <laughs> to respond to me in ways that are helpful to me, right? Um, and and so, what does that? What does that look like um, at the at the end of the day? And I and I I think it is this: if I believe nobody, I don't care what you look like, you need you need mentors and you need sponsors. Okay, and sometimes those people are in your organization, and sometimes they're not. And you might say, well, how can that help me if they're not in the organization? Well, it may not be optimal, but it's better than zero, right? Um, And every time you can develop one of those relationships, it, it is helping you move forward. I mean, that has been my experience and you may not see it overnight right um and you may not be aware of the benefit that is is coming your way in the near term but it matters and so that that is the advice i i would give paula look thank you so much for coming on to the show this evening and having this conversation with me. Uh, Clearly our listeners love this. Um, It's fun to educate and give them some eye-opening experiences. 
to understand how women like you have been successful in this space. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I know you are a tough person to get scheduled on and you have a busy schedule, so I respect that. Thank you for coming on with us this evening to all of our listeners who joined us this evening. Thank you so much for joining Heartbeat on these conversations. We will look forward. Joy will be back on air with you.